Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Um, as I mentioned in our last episode, this is sort of Hitch's final act. Um, and uh, for those of you who are keeping up at home, you'll notice we skipped over two movies. Uh, I told you we were going to talk about Frenzy, and we will. Uh, um, but yeah, we, we skipped over two films. We skipped over Torn Curtain and Topaz. And if you haven't seen those movies, I'm sure you're wondering why. Maybe if you have seen those movies, you might still be wondering why. Um, those movies uh, are half-forgotten, unfortunately. Um, I think every Hitchcock movie deserves to be a little bit more remembered than some of them are. And it's been a number of years since I watched those movies, and I'm planning on... On, uh, on watching them before I record our final episode because um, our last episode is going to be this big post-mortem and I want to want to kind of make sure I'm as prepared for that one as possible um, for our sort of final exam, if you will. Yeah, we, we are skipping over those movies partially because I just don't have the time to talk about every single movie Hitchcock did. The man made 50 movies, so... I can't, I can't sit here and tell you about all of them. And so I'm hitting the highlights. And in, in this final era, Frenzy is the highlight of, of Hitch's career in this, in this last act of, of, uh, of Hitch. Um, and we're going to talk about Family Plot simply because it's his last film and I think it deserves being looked at. And because it, it also has been half forgotten along with Topaz and Torn Curtain, but it also, as not only because it's his final film, but because of the elements that make it up, it so perfectly represents every single thing we've talked about uh, this entire semester, if you will. Um, and I think for no other reason than that, it needs to be discussed. I want to give you uh, a brief history that, that I, I wanted to end Psycho on, but once I got in the, in the studio, uh, I not only realized I was running long, but I realized that I'd really hit the perfect note to end on. And I, I, then I, I kept trying to figure out how to rework it into the other episodes, and I just couldn't figure it out. Um, so we're going to open this episode with, with a little bit of history. Um, on what went on on the business side of Hitch's career um, and hopefully can clear, clear up some confusion for some of you more avid observers. Um, so you may have noticed that at the beginning of Psycho it says, uh, it says it's a Paramount film. But if any of you have visited Universal Studios, you know that they sort of claim it as their own. And to some extent, they, they, they absolutely have a right to do so. Uh, it was made on the back lot at Universal Studios um, in their sound stages and in their, their, their open-air environments, the, the locations that they have uh, on their lot there. Um, and, it, and it was made with his TV people. And that show was, I believe, an NBC production. And uh, NBC and Universal Studios have had been tied together for a long time. And uh, so it was made with, with Universal Studios contracted people on the Universal Studios back lot. But it's, 
it's distributed by Universal Studios to this day, not by Paramount. And on top of that, it's the last film Hitchcock did for Paramount, and he had already moved his offices to Universal Studios anyway. And the actual production company was Hitchcock's own Shamley Productions, but it was distributed by Paramount. Make no mistake. That's why their logo is at the front end of that movie even now. The interesting thing was that Hitchcock was represented by a company by MCA. And if you know MCA at all, you know that they were, you know that they eventually had a controlling interest in Universal Studios. And after the film did so well and he collected several large checks, he made an interesting deal. He swapped the rights for that film for stocks in MCA, which made him the third largest shareholder. And those rights that went to MCA were later conferred to Universal Studios, and that's why they claim it as their own, which I think is interesting. So by the time we've done The Birds and Marnie, and especially by the time we've gotten to Frenzy, Hitchcock is now his own boss. He is a shareholder of MCA, which has a controlling interest in Universal Studios, which means that he doesn't work for anybody but himself, which is interesting. However, he's still a very responsible filmmaker, not very self-indulgent. However, he does indulge himself a little bit on this project. See, he took his Universal Studios production all the way to England, and as he put it, because the story called for it, which makes sense. It's a, it, it's a movie that takes place in England, in London to be specific, um, and has a very English sensibility to it. And he cast the film with all English actors, and it was an entirely English crew, and he filmed in the streets of London, and now and at the now famous Pinewood Studios, uh, which is mostly famous because of uh, Star Wars, uh, which films there um, currently, and I believe even in the past. So, Frenzy. Um, let me give you a brief synopsis if you haven't watched the film yet. When a man is mistaken by the police as the necktie murderer, he is forced to hide as the police chase after him, all the while the real killer is closer than anyone realizes. Now, appropriately enough, Hitch introduced quite a bit of that same humor we might remember from The Trouble with Harry, and that's, what, that's part of what I mean by this typical English sensibility, this, this humor of the macabre. Hitch often theorizes that the reason that this is considered an English sensibility and is not shared by the Americans, at least not by all of us, um, was that it was cultural, and it goes back to the idea of English crime and how it differs from American crime. Um, he supposed that this might be because the English had more had to be more creative in how they got rid of their their victims um, because they're in such a small country. And because they had to be more creative about it, that made it more newsworthy. Uh, and he told all sorts of stories about people stuffing bodies into trunks and having them shipped all over the country. And um, he often cited a, a, a case that inspired a small part in Rear Window. Um, in, in, in Rear Window, there's a question of what happened to the head of the, the late Mrs. Thorwald. And so he tells the story about a man who kills his wife, and he takes the body onto a train, and he begins cutting her up and throwing pieces of her out the window of the moving train. <laughs> but he still had the problem with the head, and I'm, 
in nothing I've heard or read, Hitch describes what the problem with that is. I think the issue would have been identification. How do I get rid of this head so that no one can identify who it is? I think that's the problem. Uh, so he decides to burn it. He takes it to uh, his home or his flat or whatever, puts it in the fireplace, and lights fire. The problem is uh, the heat somehow caused the eyelids to open up. And I imagine if you're already paranoid because you killed someone and you're staring <laughs> at a head, the head of your wife in a fireplace and her eyelids open up and you don't know why, uh, you, would <laughs> you would probably react the same way this man did, which is to run out of the house and never return. Um, but it's apparently this, this cultural fascination and humor of the macabre that comes out in this film. Uh, but Hitch had bigger ideas concerning humor in general and the way it should be used and incorporated in a dramatic storyline. Um, we've talked a little bit about this. Um, in Hitchcock on Hitchcock in the horribly titled essay, Women Are a Nuisance. And if you read it, you understand that he's not being uh, misogynistic when he says that. Um, it's, it's, it's part of his humor. He says, he, he, he writes in a quote, I take a dramatic situation up and up and up to its peak of excitement, and then before it has time to start the downward curve, I introduce comedy to relieve the tension. He goes on to say, comedy too does paradoxically make a film dra more dramatic. A play gives you intervals for reflection. These interviews have to be, these intervals have to be supplied in a film by contrast. And if the film is dramatic or tragic, the obvious contrast is comedy. Now, that's an interesting idea. He often talks about how the play is not a continuous art form or a continuous medium. It is broken up through the intermission and through scene changes um, and through all these different ways that the play has to take a moment so that the audience can breathe. Well, film doesn't have that. It can just go and go and go and go. And I'm sure many of us have seen movies where at the end we were exhausted or, or, or didn't even really comprehend what we'd seen because the pace of the film was so fast, it didn't give us a chance to breathe. Um, movie that exhausted me is Cloud Atlas. I, I don't know how many of you have seen that film, but um, I think if nothing else, just for the experience, it's worth watching. Um, it's one of these big, broad scope films where it tells many story, many smaller stories to communicate overarching themes about humanity. And really, if you look at each story, they're almost the same story told through different contexts. But there are several moments where they build three, of, three or four of these stories together into their climaxes that build and build and build and build and then are released, and then you still have two hours of movie left because you don't get a chance to to break there's no intervals and so hitch felt that these interview intervals i i can't say that for some reason these intervals in films need to be contrasts so if it's comedy you have an interval of drama if it's a drama you have an interval of comedy etc so there's there's some horror in this film there is plenty of suspense as one would expect um there's all these elements of the story that are because the story deals with rape and murder that are heavy 
but don't feel nearly as heavy when you place a few well-timed comedy bits or even comedy scenes in the film. And, 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 and that's what Hitch is talking about. The, the movie still has all of the impact it needs, but no more than it needs because of these comedy moments, because of these lighter moments. Spielberg is a master at this. If you watch any Spielberg film, they all come off fun. No matter how terrified you might have been, Jurassic Park could have been a straight horror film, but he plays it as a fun adventure because there's enough comedy in there to give you the effect of being terrified in certain moments. Maybe not terrified, but uh, you know what I mean. But then there's enough to play play into that so that you can feel some relief. Um, so I mentioned with the birds that we were sort of laying the groundwork for Frenzy. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is sound. And this film, he took the stylization of sound even further by unrealistically just dropping sound or unrealistically boosting sound in certain areas. Um, in the book Hitchcock Interviews, there's something, there's a, an interview entitled Conversation with Alfred Hitchcock, where he describes three separate situations. There's a friend of our hero who is about to introduce him to another character. Excuse me. Let me, let me say that in a way that actually makes sense. Our hero is having a conversation with his friend. And his friend is about to introduce our hero to a passerby. But when the friend turns around, our hero is gone. And he says, and I quote, At that point, I cut off all the sound except for the footsteps of people going by. All the market roar was gone. I took it out arbitrarily to emphasize the man's disappearance. And he repeats this sort of device when the murderer shows up unexpectedly. He asks a woman a seemingly benign question. But all of the sound leaves the mix, and all we hear is his voice. And he says, again, and I quote, Of course, that wasn't accurate, but it was an effect which worked. And that's the thing. There's a difference between telling a story truthfully and telling a story accurately. Most people would say that truth goes, or most artists anyway, I suppose, would say that truth goes beyond facts. There's ways to tell a story impressionistically or expressionistically through the tools that we have that aren't accurate, but they leave an appropriate impression on the audience or communicate something to the audience that is truthful, uh, if that makes sense. There's, such as in this case, he drops all the sound out so that only the murderer's seemingly benign question can be heard. And in that moment, we understand exactly what's going on and we understand exactly what's being set up for us. And it is not realistic. It is dramatic. Because after all, we are telling a drama. And it is that drama that sometimes needs to be emphasized through unrealistic means of expression. And then, following that, he... He does the exact opposite, actually. Because the murderer brings that woman to his apartment, at which point we, we know what's going to happen. And he says, When the camera discreetly retreated down the stairs, it went out into the street, and I brought the traffic up to a tremendous roar so that an audience would subconsciously say to itself, Well, if the girl screams, no one's ever going to hear it. And there you have it. See, so there's... You don't need manufactured effects like he did with the birds to create something in the audience's mind or to help tell your story dramatically 
beyond beyond the norm. Sometimes just changing the mix just right can have just as great an effect um, as your unrealistic sounds might have. So uh, the other thing that we mentioned in the birds is that Hitch cared deeply about having a realistic aesthetic. And, and we're already sort of touching on this. There's this idea that that um, that that I think people confuse difference between realism in the the feel of the movie and the story actually being real. As he put it, he said it must look real, but never be real. See, there's a distinction between creating a realistic atmosphere and telling a story that is true to life. You often hear a lot of people say that they want their their movies to be real. And and and, and, and typically what, what people are actually talking about there is is they want the story to not be all hearts and flowers, to not have a, a, a classical Hollywood ending to it where everything works out okay. A man gets the girl and defeats the villain and and everything's okay, and he gets a promotion in the process or whatever. You know, some people want more of a down ending or, or, or at least a, uh, a bittersweet ending, you know, or, or people want their, want their Marvel movies or their, their DC movies even to be more gritty. I think, I think uh, that's a perfect example of, of perhaps a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of what an audience really might want out of a story. Um, the 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 DC comic films like uh, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad have been dark and gritty and quote real, but they haven't done that well with audiences. In contrast to the Marvel films, which are not real by any stretch of the imagination, uh, they they represent a much more classical Hollywood, you know modernized but but kind of a classical hollywood storytelling um but those movies do fantastically so be careful not to conflate tone with reality those are not the same thing a realistic story and a realistic atmosphere are not necessarily the same thing let me let me dive into to how Hitchcock put this. See, Hitchcock of, often compared filmmaking to roller coasters. The point was to put the audience in a situation where they felt as though they were in danger without ever actually being in danger. And roller coasters can be terrifying. You can feel as though you are in danger. I remember, I remember. Um, there's a there's a fantastic roller coaster in uh, Magic Mountain in California called uh, X. That's all it's called, just X. And uh, it's it's sort of a strange device. It, I love roller coasters, so you're gonna have to forgive me for this town for this tangent. Um, it, it, it it's not built like a like a standard roller coaster, you know, with a cart or some kind of a car, you know, that that, that you sit in that's on that's connected to the others and goes up track. Um, basically, if, if is, instead of creating a cart, if you had a centerpiece that rides the track and then extending on either direction off of it were two bucket seats that were just free floating. Not totally free-floating, but there's no floor. There's no anything there. They're just extended off the sides of the track, basically. Um, and then the seats themselves turn, rotate uh, forwards and backwards all the way around, even, um, uh, at, at certain pre-programmed moments. Uh, so that at, at one point, 
they've completely flipped around and the track is above you as you're riding upright. Um, it feels like a suspended roller coaster. Anyway, um, this this roller coaster starts off differently than, than others. Instead of facing forward going up the hill, you're facing backward looking down the hill. And that takes you up and up and up and up and up. And then and the first drop is a, uh, is a vertical drop, a, a, a rather high vertical drop. And they, they've done this magnificently where the, the, uh, the roller coaster takes you backwards looking down the hill. And then as you get to the, the peak, the seats turn forward so that you're forced to look at the ground as the roller coaster drops straight down. Well, the first time I was on this ride, we were in the front. And if you've ridden enough roller coasters and you're observant, what you've noticed is that when you're in the front, the rest of the train hasn't gotten off that chain lift yet. So there's a moment where you're creeping toward the edge and it feels like forever before you actually go down the, the first hill. Well... <laughs> As I described to you, I find myself at the top of this hill looking straight down to the ground. And that moment of forever felt like forever in a day as I'm looking straight down to pavement. And I was never in danger because I, I had my seatbelt on, or my, 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 my safety harness on, and, and it had been checked. And, and I'm sure these things go through a million safety inspections before anyone's actually ever allowed on the ride. I was never in danger, but it was the only time I actually felt like I might not survive this trip. And it's that kind of emotion that Hitch is looking for or was looking for when he made a film. This idea of you're never in danger of anything when you watch a movie. Because it's all fake and it's all on a screen. But it feels you experience vicariously all those same emotions, hopefully, that the characters are going through, if you've done your job right. So in, in the book Hitchcock Interviews, in another interview called uh, Mr. Hitchcock on his films, he says... You want them to get off the switchback railway, or the roller coaster, giggling with pleasure. Like the woman who comes out of a, a sentimental movie and says, It was lovely. I had a good cry. I think it's the satisfaction of temporary pain. It is the same thing when people endure the agonies of a, sus of a suspense film. When it's all over, they are relieved. Now, the interview goes on, and they discuss a movie called Sabotage, which we did not talk about. Um where he had a suspenseful situation but did not, did not relieve the suspense. I'm going to take a step back. We remember, hopefully, Alfred Hitchcock's classic example of suspense. Example is, you have if there is a bomb under the table during an, during an innocuous conversation or during any conversa conversation, you have to show the bomb first, right? So he does pretty much exactly that. He tells the audience that this bomb is going to go, go off at a specific time. However, that classic example of setting up suspense like that is you have to relieve the suspense. That bomb can't go off, at least not in a way that puts our characters in any jeopardy. It may go off after they've left the room or it may go off out in the street where they throw it or into the lake or whatever, but it can't actually harm anyone. Well, 
part of the reason that Hitch always brings that up is because he made that mistake in this film, Sabotage. Not only does he have a bomb, but the bomb actually goes off, therefore never relieving the suspense that he's spent all this time building up in the audience. And the interviewer, Hugh Weldon, says perhaps it came near a reality because bombs go off. And Hitch responds, that's probably true. I don't think many people want reality, whether it's in the theater or in a film. It must look real, but it must never be real. Because reality is something none of us can stand at any time. And my way of putting this is it's fiction. Keep it that way. The goal is not to represent reality on film, but to maybe in a better way represent truth. I think that's what Hitchcock felt. Um, it must feel real, but it must never be real. Um, and so we need to be careful that we're not mixing up certain ideals uh, when in our search for truth. At least that's what I think Hitchcock would have told us. It's it's not about it's not about giving the people a realistic story. It's about giving them a story where they can experience something that seems real because any movie is fake number one let's remember that but what they really want is to be engaged in a realistic way be engaged in a way that so that they feel that that it's real that that, that what they've seen is real i think that's where people get confused anyway um I'm trying not to interject myself too much and trying to just let Hitchcock speak for himself. Um, but uh, with that, that does conclude our penultimate um, episode um, or uh, class session this semester uh, of uh, Hitchcock University. Uh, once again, you can reach out to me at um, on my email, hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Uh, Facebook, Hitchcock University, or um, or on Twitter, uh, Hitch underscore U. You can also leave comment, rating, review, whatever you like, uh, wherever it is you listen to the show, on TuneIn, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, yeah, thank you for attending. Um, in, our, in our final exam, if you will, uh, we will... We will uh, look at pretty much everything we've talked about through the lens of Family Plot. Um, so I really would recommend that you try to track that movie down before um, uh, before we get there. Um, I'm going to be doing a very intensive review. Um, and I think we're also going to try to give you sort of a sneak peek of some kind um, into into our next semester with Martin Scorsese, which I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, and I think we're going to have uh, very good and very informative uh, class sessions with Martin, or with Marty, as I will probably refer to him time and time again. Uh, not that I know him, but that's just how people who know him refer to him, much as I've done with, with Hitchcock here, or frequently call him Hitch. Um, but yes, thank you again for attending this class session. Uh, we will hold class in two weeks.